From Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, this is The Legal Lounge. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello and welcome to The Legal Lounge. I'm Amanda and along with the lawyers and experts here at Lanyon Bowdler, I'll be bringing you a series of podcasts that cover many aspects of law in England and Wales. It's our aim to show you that the law isn't scary and nor are our lawyers. If you have a particular legal issue you'd like me to put to our specialists for an upcoming episode, please let us know by getting in touch through the website lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. In this episode, Louise Howard from our personal injury team speaks with veteran Andrew Preston, where he talks about his need to take action against the MOD for his PTSD injuries and how difficult it was to make that first step to pursue a claim and the stigma that surrounds PTSD. Hi, I'm Louise. Andrew, thank you very much for coming in today. No pleasure. We're just going to have a chat about your case and your experience of your case. Do you want to start by just talking us through what your case was all about? My name is Andrew Preston. I served in the army for 29 years. Um, in 2009, I went to Baghdad with US forces and was injured. And as a result of that PTSD, I was treated within the military by um, the DCMH. And after five years of treatment, they declined to keep me in the army. Uh, they couldn't cure me. So in March 2014, I was kicked out. From then, there was a transition period of moving into civilian employment, which was very successful. Uh, but I always felt that I needed to do something just to seek closure retribution if you want um, against the Ministry of Defence and so um, I approached Lanyon Bowdler that's when the case was taken up by Louise um, I can't remember the exact date when we started but some time ago years ago now yeah. years, years <laughs> ago now but yeah uh, so that's the background to it I needed to do something having met lots of younger soldiers uh, who couldn't do anything and were suffering uh, two colleagues who killed themselves was it being vindictive? Perhaps not. It's a cathartic process, perhaps to take on an adversary who thinks they can get away with it. And in particular, uh, being kicked out of the army because they said they couldn't treat me, I, I did feel aggrieved about that. Uh, and that's the reason I, I decided to take the action. Uh, not an easy step at all. I think walking into Lanyon Bowdler in Oswestry the first time and just say, do you do this, uh, this sort of negligence case uh, that was a really big step. I think that's a really important point because we've talked about this before that you sign over your life to the MOD you've got complete trust in them hmm. you felt really let down however walking through the door and making that step to bring a case against them is still a really difficult thing to do. Suzanne my wife wasn't entirely comfortable with that because she's a lawyer herself but I felt it it was the last chance saloon, and if indeed uh, Lanyon Bowdler come back and said, look, we, we don't want to take this on, I'd have dropped it. But I, I did it for the reason of a cathartic approach to try and give the MOD a swift kick and to some extent to do it on behalf of other soldiers who couldn't do it or didn't have that moral strength, that's not the word, but have the wherewithal to do it. And I must say at this stage, the whole process of doing it um, I couldn't have done it without the support of my family, my wife and my children in particular, uh, and wider family who have been uh, brilliant. PTSD doesn't just affect you. No. It affects the whole family, doesn't it? No, it does. And I think, um, interestingly, when looking on hindsight, um, I do recall a conversation with my stepmother-in-law, a lovely lady, um, and it was her who first, well, Suzanne and the children knew something wasn't right, but 
she said, there's something wrong with you. And that was, oh, crikey, that must have been 2010. Um, she saw the change in me. And so, you you know, the symptoms I had were distressing to the family in the extreme, where previously I'd been quite gregarious, outgoing, never shut up. Um, I became very withdrawn. Um, I didn't want to interact with friends. Um, and that was very distressing to Suzanne and the children. Uh, you'd have people come round and I'd just take myself off and go and hide in a corner somewhere. I did not want to engage. And that was one of the symptoms that was particularly distressing. You didn't know at the time that that was because of PTSD, though, did you? No, not really, no. The symptoms I had um, when I was in the military and serving my last few years at MOD Abbey Wood, the medical support I got there from the um, doctor's practice was brilliant, outstanding. It was a civilian practice, <laughs> no military involvement. They were outstanding GPs. Um, and it was them who who pushed me to get support and fought and fought on my behalf. And it was really only through their um, hard work and diligence that they finally said, yeah, you've definitely got PTSD. I remember you saying to me that you didn't really understand what PTSD was when they said that to you to begin with. Yeah, correct. And that it's been a real, I hate to use the word, but journey to kind of understand from then what is PTSD and yeah. how it affects your life. Yeah, I think it varies from very different people. But I mean, my particular symptoms are um, panic attacks, not quite right. But I, I do have those. Um, I do, I used to break down. I, I occasionally still do. I mean, catastrophic breaking down. Uh, hiding in a corner. Um, I do recall one particular incident where um, I was just at my desk at home working, just sobbing my eyes out, and I was scooped up. Uh, I'd been taken off the medication then, and um, I was just picked up by my son, Will, all six foot five of him, and carried into the doctor's surgery uh, with Suzanne walking behind, and then the doctor put me back on medication. So the symptoms of that, unable to cope with daily life or any form of stress, the hypervigilance, so I don't do so much hitting the deck now, but even if the phone rang, so when you referred me yesterday, there was, you know, a, a vertical ascent upwards out of the chair. Um, then there's the issue of um, its withdrawal on a social level, not wishing to engage with people, uh, which is a bit better now, but still there. Yeah. So those symptoms came as quite a shock. Um, in fact, yeah, a great shock. And I didn't understand why they were happening to me, and, um, which is now becoming clear as I go through the therapy at the moment. It, it was very difficult to understand it. And one of the things I did gradually as time went on, and I've talked about the support of my family, but actually um, I remember telling one of my very closest friends, I was at Sanders with Ian McKent, we were walking on the canal near Langollen. And I actually told him, he didn't know, and he was so relieved. He said, I, I thought it was something I'd done. And so Ian and I, you know, we were shared a trench together when we were at Sandhurst and been through hell and back. And so to tell him and um, was a great support. And then my other great military friend who I served here when I was in five did, Peter McMillan, that had, you know, Peter's support. Um, this is all outside the army. It's not within the army concept. These are friends. There was an occasion when I, I've never, ever contemplated suicide at all. I've been asked. Um, I understand why people do it, but I have never, ever, not once said, no, that's it, I've had enough, um, because I, I know the mess it leaves. I've seen it. 
Um, but I think on one particular occasion, I was really very distressed. And Suzanne, on her way to work, called in to see Peter, who then came straight across and took me out to lunch. Peter and Ian have been brilliant in looking after me because they understand. They've seen it, you know. Um, both of them are, are partially ruined uh, physically uh, from injuries sustained within the military. But Peter and, and Ian understand what it's all about. They've seen it in other soldiers about the symptoms of PTSD and how difficult it is to articulate what you're feeling. My understanding is though it still took a little while for you to feel able to have that conversation. There's a stigma associated with PTSD that is uh, ill-founded and not understood. I do think occasionally when you read some of the uh, more lightweight press, people talk about PTSD um, and I'm sure they've got mental health issues and one should never deride that but PTSD to me is I would say is at the extreme end so you know our all three armed forces the uh, blue light services indeed any sector can anybody with any sector can suffer PTSD I have a colleague at work at the moment who, who narrowly missed being killed in a, um, a water waste water plant he's got it and I can understand why but you can't see it you cannot see PTSD. So I did say it to a surgeon, perhaps even better if I had my leg blown off. And he said, no, it, wouldn't. it would not trust me because of the, you know, the stuff you have to do. But your point is people could see that. Yeah. You wouldn't have to explain yourself. Perhaps it was a, was it a foolish thing to say? I think I was searching for sort of acknowledgement that I had PTSD and people to see it. Um, so yeah, it, it is very difficult for people to understand, you know, because you look perfectly normal. There was a stage where I was previously quite gregarious and that just rescinded and uh, almost disappeared. So I became very withdrawn. And then there were occasions when I'd steal myself up and became excessive in terms of my exuberance, which was a false behaviour. Sometimes I do that. Other times I just retract into myself. I would say I'm getting better, and that's through the good works of the CTS, which is, uh, but that getting that treatment through the NHS took some damn time. I tried other um, therapists beforehand, and they they just didn't get it. Now Suzanne Whittler with the CTS, she's a she's a military brat herself, and in that terms, that's a child who was born of military parents. <laughs> Let's put it, make sure we're aware of that. But she gets it. She's worked with uh, veterans who've suffered similarly. So she, she gets the breadth of the PTSD. She understands it and she understands the need. And she is, I can't praise her enough because she seems to be able to read my, almost read my thoughts. So if we're talking about particular, we're going through particular issues at the moment, which is a, yeah, pretty, it's not pleasant. So I'm reliving um, particular issues uh, at the moment. And um, so uh, death of colleagues, incoming fire, um, lack of protection afforded by the Americans where we were. So that, we're reliving that. And so that's difficult, but it does allow you to exercise that ghost, which has been very useful. And that in itself then allows you to negate those false behaviours. So that, as we talked about, the exuberance, over-exuberance, it does calm down the hypervigilance. So is it a case that she's helping you understand where those symptoms come from? Correct. So that you can kind of address them and, and move on? Yeah, 
we talk about the frontal lobe and the back bit and all, all this lot and the ability to process that information hasn't happened so she's given me that opportunity to process it in a safe environment using EMDR, a light bar. And so you literally watch this light go back and forwards, which sounds utterly bizarre. So eye movement desensitisation reprocessing. That's exactly correct. And I knew that myself, but I was just waiting for you to come out with the... Um, <laughs> Thank with you the, for allowing me to say that. But yeah, and it is really useful um, because you, bizarrely, you will remember a specific incident so death of colleague you start with that and then you just migrate through a whole series of things pop into your mind and gradually remembering that issue the death of a colleague the incoming fire you can remember it without going into a flat spin and panicking it doesn't go away entirely no my understanding is it almost helps you file it away it does you so you can put it away Louise in the background and recall it without you know out panicking trauma and things like that one of the things she does as well if you're struggling um, she calls it snap so if you've done that particular EMDR the machine stops so you're struggling a bit and then you talk about a pleasant event so I, I took Jenny talk about uh, my grandson Charlie and so while you're doing that you are patting your hands on your knees and then she'll go snap and you have to blink three times. Sounds utterly bizarre, but it works because what that does is you're talking about a pleasant thing that's come to the front of the memory, the consciousness. The bad thought is in the background still being processed and it gives you that breathing space. And when we first did this, I thought she's lost the plot here, <laughs> but it was brilliant. And this has been proven to be uh, an excellent way of allowing consistent processing of the bad incident in the background but giving you respite from the trauma of it and then you return to doing that again and is that helping with the nightmares uh yes um nightmares oh i forgot about them sorry <laughs> no it's all right no it's all right <laughs> actually that's a good sign if you've forgotten about them clearly something's working yeah nightmares have decreased i still get what can only be described as damn weird dreams but yeah they have decreased that was that was you know sitting up in bed I didn't actually sit up in bed screaming, but I jump out of bed and, you know, Susanna said, what's wrong? And, you know, I, I, something else I've remembered or something. Did I remember what actually happened? Sometimes no, sometimes yes. But those have diminished with this treatment. And then in terms of hypervigilance, that's, that's diminished. There, there is another symptom, which is aggression. Perhaps that comes with being trained as a soldier. You can't really pop into a, a compound of Taliban and use harsh language. It just doesn't work. Probably not, no. You know, so they train you as a soldier and then they don't retrain you to be a civilian. And actually, just to slightly go off on a tangent, I always think this is quite an interesting point. My understanding is that you are moulded through your training to almost put your emotions completely on the back burner because you've got a job to do, haven't you? But when you start to experience symptoms of PTSD, I always feel that it must be very difficult to understand those if you are almost detached from that emotional side of things. And you don't seem to get the reverse. You don't seem to have any sort, there doesn't seem to be any, I don't know the best way to explain it, but once you've got PTSD, once you've got those symptoms, you need to understand what they are and you need to have that connection with your emotional side in order to process it, in order to go through therapy. Is that something that the therapy process tries to do? Yeah, very much so. Um, 
just going back to when this all started in 2009, when I came back from Iraq and knew I was not right, allegedly the military did training on spotting the symptoms and signs of PTSD. Normally that would be done through decompression um, when they flew you to Cyprus and you spent a day and a half getting absolutely schwallied. But equally there were briefings, padre there available. If you were an individual augmentee, which I was, you didn't get that. I have never seen any training on how to note PTSD. But I do think that that training, which has allegedly happened, didn't really take place. So when when I was working in MED Abbey Wood, there was not many military who got it. They did not understand it. And there was a distinct lack of sympathy towards it. Um, And that was not, that was multiple people just did not get it. That was one of your motivations for bringing the case as well. It was about drawing attention to the issue. Um, I suffered uh, at the hands of um, the Ministry of Defence and certain individuals within it. That wasn't a pleasant experience at all. So it's essentially, it's like kicking a man when he's down. Um, Yeah, that nearly broke me. That nearly was the final nail in the coffin. Um, Just digressing backwards, interestingly, one of the other things I should raise is that my final interview with the psychiatrist, who I only ever saw once, and that was when my final interview was at DCMH Tidworth, was that in PTSD, if you had three breakdowns, the last one, the chances of your recovery, was very, was very slim indeed. Define breakdown, he didn't really go into that. But when I subsequently left and spoke with... Um, Dr. Crikey, our our guy. Dr. Bagley. That's him. He said, no, that's quite wrong. All words to that effect. And so did Suzanne Whittle, saying, you know, breakdowns are are a natural occurrence within this sort of illness. To say your third one will mean that you've, that's it, you're game over, you're just a cabbage, you're going to park you in a hole somewhere. That stayed with you, hasn't it? I mean, we've talked about that conversation a few times during the life of the case. So it was an incredibly damaging comment to oh, make hugely. and it was I do remember walking out of um, Tidworth after the occupational doctor saw me uh, and said that's it you're out walking across the car park thinking bloody hell 29 years and that's it you're out um, and I think the other the other worst one was handing the MO, the ID card in that was just um, that final you know if you have a third breakdown, that's it, it's game over. And that, you're quite right, a comment like that was one of the reasons I came to see you and the action that followed or was going on with certain members of the military in Abbey Wood. Um, because I felt, had it been one of my own soldiers and I'd seen this, you sit down and you talk to them. You know, if it's one of you, you can see it. You, you know, it's, it's a natural, if you're a, a leader of men and women, if you're trained at Sanders, and if you're a human being with a degree of empathy or sympathy, and you see somebody suffering, you don't kick them, you try and sort them out. That didn't happen, and that needs to happen. You know, the, um, the Israelis were really good at this in the Yom Kippur and all seven-day war and all that, and other nations have done it really well, the Americans in particular. We just don't do it. Um, so that's one of the reasons I strolled in to see you. Yes, absolutely. And what's coming across from what you're talking about is the importance of recognising those symptoms, asking for help and getting that appropriate support around you because now you've reached a point where you've got 
a fantastic therapist, your friends and family understand, you know, you can cope better. Uh, very much so. Yeah. And I think um, one of the things that I, I must mention is the support I've got from Coste in my current company. When I was working on the Dreadnought program up in Barrow and Furness, I was struggling. I was living away from home. Um, our team leader was ex-military, uh, Stephen Noble. And I did a piece of work that wasn't up to scratch. I was really suffering. Uh, the short-term memory, the remembering how to do things did come in. Came in, he said, what's wrong, Andrew, this work? So I told him. And um, this was my Crocodile Dundee moment. And um, he said, okay, got it. Let's, let's see what I can do to help. And one of the things he said with my permission was, why don't we have a chat with some of your colleagues here, many of whom were ex-military. So we did, all went into a room. 12 of them said Andrew's got PTSD I told them all about it and from then on it was a big relief and a lot easier because people understood it and the support I got from Costain was outstanding I think it's important to get across as well the fact that you're still very capable Mm. and you've not let the PTSD stop you pursuing a career okay you've had to take a bit of a back step but you have been very determined to keep going and what you're saying is working in an environment where you can be really open about your symptoms has helped you even more. I think that's one thing that's a good point, Louise, because PTSD doesn't mean you're some gibbering imbecile. You still can function absolutely. There may be days where you just have a bit of a moment, but you're still perfectly capable of holding down a decent a decent job. And that's the act, you know, people with, with uh, an erroneous attitude of PTSD probably think, oh, we can't do anything. Well, absolutely wrong. Can we talk a bit more about the cathartic process? Yes, because of course. Because your case, as with a, a lot of these cases, it, it did take years to get to the end of it. It's not a quick process at all. No. And that's not an easy process for you to have to go through because we have to explore all of the issues. We have to talk about difficult um, instances. We have to ask you to speak to medical experts. And that's asking an awful lot of you. Mm. We've talked about the fact that going through that, although it wasn't easy, once you got to the end of it, having settled a case, and although you settled a case without an admission of liability, going through that process still was cathartic and helpful. Yeah, very much so. It's it's a bit like uh, taking part or training for a marathon or doing a race. When you finally do it, you think you get to the end, it's, that's brilliant. But on the route, it, it, it's quite hard. But it is cathartic in the fact that I felt I was taking action. I was making a stand uh, against uh, an employer, in this case the MAD, who hadn't done what should be expected of them, or indeed shown basic humanity towards somebody, you know, a colleague who was suffering. Yes, it was difficult speaking to the vote, Dr. Bagley, to, to all sorts of people, and the, you know, the um, the opposition. Yeah, the defendant's experts. Yes, that's right. That was difficult. And you were bearing your chest, as it were, to opening up to a stranger. But likes of, you know, Dr. Bagley, he was brilliant, absolutely outstanding. You say, you know, you're kind of bearing your soul to them. I think it's really important to have the right expert because you've got to be able to do that. You've got to be able to have a a proper conversation with them. A, A human conversation. Yes, okay, they're the medical expert and you want them to produce certain information in a report to help your case. But that's not helpful if it's a horrible experience for you. Was there a sense of acknowledgement as well? You know, having that in a report, having it written down, having a, this is what you've been through, um, here's the diagnosis, here's where we think this is going to go. Did that help cement in your own mind where you were with things and acknowledge that what you'd experienced was valid? Yeah, I mean, to see somebody 
uh, as eminent as Dr. Bagley say, yeah, you have got this. This is the problem. These are the symptoms. This is what we need to do and all that. It really was helpful because you've got somebody professional doing that. And equally, um, our employment expert who came in and said you would have got to this rank and all this sort of thing, that was very helpful as well. Part of the process to say, actually, you know, you weren't useless. You were pretty good and you would have got to here. You're never going to make chief of the defence staff. Um, which is a great shame, obviously, but um, you would have got to hear, you know, successful career. Um, I would say that there were times on it when, as I said to you before, about um, when trial dates were being firmed up, you know, there was a bit of a wobble moment going, blue neck, you know. But when like, you, you phoned me to say, we've got it, we've won, I mean, it was a bit of a backflip moment, you know, and it was a great relief and proof that actually, you know, I, I was right. I had been maligned, I had been unjustly treated. Um, so that was great. And like I said, the running analogy, yeah, you got there in the end, and great, marvellous. There was a cathartic process, because it is nice going out for a run, as you know. But there was a bit of pain involved, and there were painful moments, there were really good moments that did help. But overall, the whole thing was incredibly cathartic, um, because we won. The painful moments as well, one of the things that we've tried to do is take a holistic approach to it so try and put in place contacts and services and and help and support along the way to try and make sure that you have got that further support and one of the organizations that um i I think there was a bit of nagging involved from me yes um um, yes there was there was a lot of nagging harassment almost Uh, yes harassment uh, victimization there was a lot of that going on yeah you you were quite right because i know you and my wife Susanna concocted or talking about this and you're talking about walking out um, climbing out and yeah, and going do the walk and talk days with Kelderwood. Yeah, I was initially reluctant because I think um, to go with a, a, a group of strangers, uh, walk up a hill and generally chat. Perhaps it's not a natural thing for a a Yorkshireman and b a soldier to you know chat and go. Oh, well, you know, I don't feel very well and all that. Um, which is wrong, totally wrong. And uh, finally, you persuaded me and Suzanne. And I did uh, a day out with Kelder, um, and it was uh, in, it was in, it was enjoyable. I think it was enjoyable and eye-opening in the sense that there were other people in in a similar position to me. In fact, I, there was a lad from the Mercians. Interesting enough, he there were two therapy dogs there. Oh, Kelder's dogs! A mad spaniel. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I think we should have called fruitcake. Um, and then I think one of the therapy dogs was called Laurel Hardy, Laurel, one of the two. Um, and it was this dog that the lad from the Mercians really took to, as did the dog with him. And strangely enough, that was really interesting to watch the dynamic of the dogs. The dogs were brilliant. They just seemed to know, uh, we, you know, the canine friend, whether they're sniffing for cancer, sniffing for drugs, sniffing for bombs. They have this ability, and this particular little dog, only small thing, you know, when we stopped, she'd sit on his knee, uh, and that was an eye-opener. Um, and we did talk, and it is, you know, we, we didn't talk about what happened to you sort of thing. It was, you know, did you watch Coronation Street? No, I'd rather nail my foot to the floor, <laughs> um, and stuff like that, but it was really useful. Just seeing and being helpful to other people who were struggling. That actually made you a aware of how lucky you were i got through this and there are other people in a similar boat 
and perhaps it was flicking back to what I was as a an officer, uh, not taking command, but perhaps helping. So you found you almost took on that old persona and was that part of the reason the day was really good? I think so because it it was back to being of type you know nobody took command or anything but it was just walking around talking to them all and that's what I used to do. It was a sobering and very useful event and so um, following on from your uh, harassment, uh-huh. I am now doing a week away in Keswick. Oh, I am pleased. That's <laughs> marvellous. So, um, we've been told we we'll get wet. <clears throat> uh, we will be very sore. Uh, God knows what's going on. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I think that will be very useful. That's military only, though, which I opted for. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing all about that. I think it'll be fantastic. Yes, I'm sure it will. I think we're li- really lucky here in Shropshire because the Armed Forces Community Covenant is... Uh, really well respected locally and I know Climbing Out um, have signed up to the Covenant as have Lanyon Bowdler. Your daughter came along to one of the hub events that they hold. Um, It was all about understanding the wider support locally for family members as well. Libby went because Suzanne couldn't come and it was on a day that one of the organisations that provides counselling to family members as well as those that experienced difficulties was doing a bit of a talk. So it was to try and understand how they could potentially help the wider family. She was really impressed with how everybody works really well together. It's pretty good here. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been fascinating talking to you today and a pleasure to act for you. So thank you very much for that and thank you for coming in and talking us through it. Pleasure, um, Louise. I think one of the major things is all through this, you've managed my expectations. You didn't say... Here you go, Preston, we're going to win you a million in a new Aston Martin. You kept me on a level playing field and said, look, this may be a difficult process. There'll be ups, there'll be downs. And we're not guaranteed to win. And this is sort of percentage chances and whatever. So all along, I knew I had a chance. It may not work, but it was still part of that cathartic and very useful process. So I'm really grateful uh, for all you've done for me. I think you went beyond the extra mile because I know a number of times Suzanne rang you up to go, oh, blow me neck. And you were, you were great. So as a, as a lawyer and as a friend, if I may, uh, you were great. So thank you very much indeed. Thanks to Louise for lending her expertise and to Andrew for sharing his story. More proof that lawyers don't bite. If you need legal help from Louise or the personal injury team, please get in touch through lblaw.co.uk. That's lblaw.co.uk. And if you have a particular legal issue you'd like me to put to our specialists for an upcoming episode, please let us know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show and find any of the conversations interesting or helpful, please remember to use your podcast app to follow The Legal Lounge so that you never miss an episode. That was The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.